Uh, you just sat down, so before you stand up for the scripture reading, we will pray together. So would you join with me, please, as we seek the Lord's face this morning? Father, we are prone to wander, but we long for that beatific vision, for that vision of your greatness and your holiness. As Isaiah saw it in the year the King Uzziah died, he saw you sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of your robe filling the temple. There were seraphim that stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one calls out to another, and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah said, as we say, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Cleanse us this morning, Father, from the sin of this world, the sin of our own lives, and may we be able to see your face and your way and follow it. In the name of Christ, amen. Our passage this morning is First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We're just taking two verses, but we are going to read verses 1 through 8 so you can just see the entire context of what we're looking at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. First Corinthians chapter 5. If you have uh, the Bible on an app on your phone or a tablet or whatever, please turn there. And we would like to give honor to the reading of God's word. So we invite you to stand and pay attention. Listen very closely to these words of God from the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as, I, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dole? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, as you see this morning, the, the topic this morning is of a sensitive nature, and um, uh, it looks like I get the, the sex sermon. Uh, <laughs> uh, we tried so hard when we were, when we were uh, mapping out 1 Corinthians to make sure that this did not come on Easter Sunday. We didn't think this would be... Yeah, you're welcome. I should probably have given this to, to Apostle Paul, uh, Paul Murray, last week. There's Paul right here. Because he asked me, uh, what do you want me to preach on? I should have said this passage, but knowing that he's from Green Acres, I had no idea what he might have said. <laughs> Fair enough, right? Yeah. By the way, Paul, thank you for last week. Paul did a fantastic job. Yeah. But we live in a sex-saturated world, don't we? I mean, I hardly need to make that case. Um, every, everywhere you look, everything is about sex. The old saying, sex sells, is just really out of date. 
It is. It's dated now. Um, and chapters 5 through 6 are going to deal with sexual immorality in, in the church. The instance of it, how to deal with it, why to deal with it, and why sexual immorality is wrong. Because everything is sexualized today, everything. In entertainment, um, uh, visual, internet, you can't see um, an ad for clothing without uh, some sort of sexual innuendo. Um, everything is sexualized. There is this great push to sexualize children at a very young age, and we know that that is happening in many, many ways. Everybody knows this. So we as Christians, we need to think very clearly about this because it, it's a huge topic. In former days, the whole idea of sexual immorality, if you've lived long enough, it was about heterosexual sexual immorality, but we live in different times. We live in times when it's all about LGBTQ+, about lesbianism and, and being gay and being bisexual and transgender and queer and everything else you can think of. And the underlying truth of all of those, of that alphabet, is the actual practice of sin. We must not forget that. It's not just people's identity. In, in fact, in other words, immoral sexual acts are being justified by a false argument of identity. Because I have this identity, therefore I'm free to do these things. And we're going to hopefully, through God's word, correct that this morning to show what God's ideal for sex is. And just because we may identify in a certain way that does not give us license to, to sin. All promiscuity outside of the covenant of marriage is sin, the scriptures tell us. Now, if you are a victim of some kind of sexual sin in this morning, we're not talking about you. Um, you may be, in some, there may be some that are enslaved to uh, sexual addiction or pornography. We are talking to you, but we want to provide hope and help for everyone, for those who are victims and those who are caught up in sin, those who are sinners, there is hope and there is healing by the forgiveness of sin. Just as there is healing and hope for thieves and liars and drunkards and angry people and whatever there may be, there is hope and there is healing and forgiveness for all manner of sexual sin. And that forgiveness is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? For all. But what our passage is about this morning is not so much the world. We have to talk about the world a little bit, but it's, a, it's about immorality in the church, in the church. These things ought not to be. Uh, we hear all the time of a, of a pastor, of a church musician, of a Christian leader of some sort who is guilty of moral failure. We hear about it all the time, and that is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is us teaching one thing and being guilty of another, and so when we see that, uh, we, we, we want to make sure that we, as a church, approach sexual sin in a redemptive way, that we confront it when it is present, but with the hope of the gospel that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul spent four chapters dealing with the, the problem where Chloe's people said, I've, he said, I've heard from Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. And those quarrels have, have caused division. And the heart of it was they had adopted worldly wisdom and worldly values, the values of the world, the wisdom of the world, and they had divided themselves upon those lines instead of uniting through the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ unites them. So the same root problem that he dealt with in the first four chapters is the same problem here. They have adopted the wisdom of the world, the values of the world, and they have not applied it to uh, the way that they are living. If they get the first four chapters right about the cross of Christ and the gospel being the center of everything, then their lives will be centered upon the gospel of Christ too, including um, the practice of sex. So let's get right to it. We're just going to look at two verses this morning. In verse 1, we see sin in the camp. 
And the sin in the camp is immorality. Sin in the camp is an old-timey preachers used to use that all the time, basically referring to the, the sin of Achan in the, in the uh, Old Testament. And there is sin in the camp in Corinth, and that sin is immorality. Verse 1 says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. You, you catch the incredulity of Paul. He's aghast that he would have to address this. And immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. This is public knowledge. He says it's, it's actually reported. In fact, I like the Holman Christian Study Bible that, that says um, it is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Widely reported. In other words, probably Paul heard this from Chloe as well when she told him uh, about the, the quarrels in the church. And by the way, he knows who the man is. Everyone in the church knows who the man is. It is public knowledge. He's not saying anything that's personal or private. He is addressing that something that everyone knows about, publicly known in the church, immorality. When we use the word immorality, we think of sexual immorality, but the word moral does not, does not always refer to sexual morals. In fact, the, the word moral is an adjective that means uh, things that are concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior and the, the goodness or badness of human character. That's a dictionary definition of moral. The problem is... What is the standard of morality in our culture today? What is the standard of morality for us, whether it's sexual morality or just truth and ethical behavior? What is the standard by which we go? Typical dictionaries today will say the standard is the community. The standard is society. That's dangerous, isn't it? The old Webster's Dictionary said the standard for truth was, somebody tell me what, God. And that is true. Uh, the standard for truth is God himself. Um, the whole idea of, of relativism. Um, last week, I, was, uh, I began to study this, and I was thinking about, this maybe happens to you too, but I was thinking about a, a book that I had read many years ago, and I could see this paragraph on a page, and I wasn't quite sure what book it was. And I started pulling some books down from my library, and books that I knew might have that passage in it. And uh, I had about four different books that were written over a span of, of 12 years from the late 80s, actually almost uh, 20 years, uh, yeah, the late 80s till the early 2000s. And as I was looking through the table of contents and I was looking for underlinings and highlights that I've gone, gone through, I realized that all these books were saying the same thing way back in the 80s, warning the church of relativism. Warning the church that you better pay attention to the culture around you because the culture around you has no basis for truth. And, the, and this is going to seep into the church if we are not careful. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. Even that wasn't new in the 1980s and 90s. When I was in seminary, I took a, a, um, an apologetics course from uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, and I remember him telling the story, he was talking about moral relativism, that, that truth is relative, uh, of a, a college senior taking a senior philosophy class, and the topic of his paper was, uh, there is no absolute truth. Truth is relative. And he wrote this paper perfectly uh, annotated and footnoted and no, no typographical errors, nothing wrong with it at all. Very proud of his paper, well-reasoned for its purpose. Put it in a blue folder, handed it in. Next week, he gets his, pap his paper back, takes the blue folder home, opens it up, and there in big red letters, A letter was F. He was enraged. How could I get an F on what's the best paper I ever wrote in my life? And he went back to the professor and he said, what is the deal? Why did you give me an F for this paper? Because, uh, you know, it's perfectly footnoted. There are no other markings in the paper at all. And the professor took the, the folder and he said, I don't like blue folders. What do you mean you don't like blue folders? That's not fair, he said. The professor said, Look, you said uh, there are no absolute truths, and truth is, is relative. I don't like blue folders. 
F. Point was was made, and that's where that was a long time ago. Before that was situational ethics of Fletcher from the 60s. Before that, even um, even C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity dealt with this. His famous two plus two equals five and moral relativism in the early days. Um, but it goes back even further than that. Um, you may have seen this. Me, me, I may have shown you this before. In the fourth century, a conversation between Protagoras, fourth century BC that is, Protagoras and Socrates. And Protagoras says this, truth is relative, it is only a matter of opinion. Socrates says, you mean that truth is mere subjective opinion? Protagoras says, exactly, what is true for you is true for you, what is true for me is true for me. Truth is subjective. Does this sound familiar? Socrates says, do you really mean that? That my opinion is true by virtue of its being my opinion? Protagoras said, indeed I do. Goes on. Socrates says, my opinion is truth is absolute, not opinion, and that you, Mr. Protagoras, are absolutely in error. Since this is my opinion, you must grant that it is true according to your philosophy. And Protagoras says, you're quite right, Socrates. Even go back to the Garden of Eden. Has God said? Truth has always been, been challenged by the enemy in this culture, in this fallen world in which we live. What's true for you is true for, for you. What's true for me is true for me. In postmodernism, the times in which we live, there is no standard of truth except for the individual. And the logical conclusion of that is that you can do whatever you want. And particularly when it comes to the area of sexual morality, the sky's the limit because you are the final arbiter of truth. And that's where we're at today. So what Paul saw and was addressing was this. There was this sexual activity in their midst, and it was a kind of immorality that even the pagans, the world believed was wrong. He says there is immorality in your, your mix. This, this is the word, you've heard it before, porneia. We get the word pornography from it. And the world, the, this word porneia in its basic Greek meaning means prostitution, means to be with a prostitute. But it became, uh, as it's used through the New Testament, to mean any kind of sexual behavior outside of the covenant of marriage. All premarital, all extramarital, and all unnatural sex is porneia. And what he is addressing here is this wasn't even um, something that the, the pagans around them thought was okay. It, the, the sin was this. He had his mother's wife. Now, some call this incest. It may not be incest in the actual him being with his mother, but probably in a technical sense. Paul doesn't use the word mother. He could have used the word mother, but he doesn't. He, he doesn't use the word adultery either. He uses the, the word for the basic word for a, a woman or for a wife. And probably what has happened here is that his father, who doesn't seem to be in the picture, may be dead. His father may have divorced and remarried this woman. His father may have had a concubine, and that's who this woman was. Um, and probably he is, maybe he uh, divorced his, this, this man's mother and married this other woman, and again, he's out of the picture. But this man is having a sexual relationship with a woman that was married to his dad. Now, today, I can see people saying, well, that's not so bad, right? People could, would say that. I could see people making that case today. But Paul says this is the type of sexual behavior that even the, 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 the pagans, the Gentiles in Corinth did not participate in. Now, the, the Jewish Christians, they had the law and they knew what was right and wrong. But the, the Christians who came into the church that were Gentiles, they brought all their immorality with them and they thought it was okay to do anything. But they believed that this was wrong. Corinth was a very immoral place. That's the, that's the here is... Uh, the church is making Corinth blush. should not be that way. 
Demos, a writer at that time, said this about morality of the day. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. So you can have all three men. That was common in the day. So though immoral in themselves, this was one particular area that was just a bridge too far for them, and it was in the church. The problem for us is we're running out of categories. Aren't we running out of categories of what is sexual immorality anymore? We're running out. For instance, the normalization of homosexuality, including lesbianism, the normalization of bisexuality, the normalization of same-sex marriage, the normalization of transgenderism, the normalization, or rather the soon-to-be-normalized, of polyamory, which is a group of people marrying each other. That's happening. The soon-to-be-normalization of polygamy. I mean, why not, right? And probably the soon-to-be-normalization of pedophilia, in bestiality, we're running out of categories. We are running out. I read this week of a man in Japan who married a hologram some years ago. And the problem was the, the software that allowed this uh, hologram to, to speak to him had not been updated and wasn't going to be updated anymore. There were no more firmware updates. And so he could no longer communicate with the hologram, so he's brokenhearted. Because his wife, he can't speak to his wife. Floor we're headed. I saw a tweet this week that said, "Why is forcing sex upon someone more wrong than forcing someone to do anything else?" In other words, the normalization of rape. Not long ago, we could not have dreamed that would be that it would be okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman. It just was outside of our thinking. Or that it was beyond our thinking that every commercial, every TV show, every movie, every advertisement would feature gay and lesbian people and same-sex married couples normalizing it, showing us in every, in every way it's always there, it's always before us, always. And you know this. So we're talking about the church. And we should not out-sin the world. And the Corinthians were doing that. This, they were out-sinning the world. Even the world wasn't doing this one. And when we out-sin the world, the world notices. Remember the quote that I gave to you. We, we looked at from uh, James Moffat. The church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. The world had invaded the church at Corinth. The world has invaded the church in the United States and in the world as well. And this ought not to be that we become like the world and thus guilty of hypocrisy. Paul started with those divisions, but now he's getting to the heart of these issues, and it's the same issue They had adopted worldly wisdom, worldly values, and the cross of Christ is the center of their unity, and the cross of Christ is the center of their sanctification and their purity and the way that they live life. And so for us, when we get to the end of chapter 6, Paul will say, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your mortal flesh, in your body. And when the church practices hypocrisy, the name of God is blasphemed. Romans 3, 23 and 24, Paul said, You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Yes. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You see, when politicians... And movie stars and pro athletes and rock stars live lives of immorality. People think that they're living the good life. But when we say that this is wrong, and when we do it ourselves, 
we shame the church and bring dishonor to the name of Christ. And we damage his church because we solely his bride. It's like glory in reverse, isn't it? When we live righteous and holy and pure lives, God is glorified. But when we live immorally, God gets the opposite. He is blasphemed by the world who say, oh, God, there is no God because they're no different from anybody else. And this happens in the church. I was uh, looking at, um, there's a website called the Christian Post. Maybe some of you look at it. It's Christian News. And uh, one day, I just looking, at there, here were the, some of the headlines in this Christian website that just tells about what's happening in the church. Here are some of the, the uh, headlines. First one was this, Westminster College not backing down from offering hardcore porn classes despite backlash, a so-called Christian college. The next one, former Christian school teacher will serve no jail time for sexual relationship with female student. The next one, pastor's wife pleads guilty to asking lover to murder husband. And when you read the article, the pastor and his wife were swingers. And she, she didn't, uh, didn't want to swing with certain people. She had her limits, you know. But one of her lovers she hired to kill her husband, who was a pastor. So, Next one. Canada's first nat- national indigenous Anglican archbishop resigns over sexual misconduct. Finally, former Hillsong Dallas pastor Reed Bogard resigned after he was accused of rape. By the way, there are t- five to ten different stories about Hillsong pastors and musicians. I don't know why. Some lessons for us. We cannot outsend the world. Cannot. Just because something is accepted in our society, it makes us think that it's not so bad. We're exposed to it over and over and over again, and we become desensitized to the sinful nature of how sex is portrayed in our culture. And that's why, parents, you're responsible to make sure... Protect those little eyes and ears from what they see and hear. That's not what we're created for. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s are bearing full fruit now. Free love. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And we just see the full gamut of it now. But in 1 Corinthians 6, the next passage, we're going to see there's a unique nature to sexual sin. The immoral man, Paul says, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. And he says, but the immoral man sins against his own body. There, there's something about sexual sin that is unique because it's a picture of, of marriage. And you take that into your marriage. And some sins have consequences that are different, and all sins are not equal, and sexual sin is unique in this nature. So we cannot outsend the world. Second, the, the church must get its own house in order. I mean, we can't go around and police churches around the United States, but to the extent that we struggle with sexual sin in our own midst, we need to pursue holiness and purity. We don't want to just rail about the culture and how bad it is because it is, but we are to pursue holiness. Peter said this in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory of, of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? God disciplines his children. 
particularly when we are hypocrites. And we do not want to be that. So we have to be careful of the downward pull of sin, the fascination with depravity. It's like a car wreck that you drive by. You can't not look away. And we see these things. We want to know the details. And we want to look further into them. When we read these headlines, we need to be careful of our own fascination with these things and pursue holiness. So that is the sin in the camp, immorality. But there's another sin in the camp, and that sin is arrogance. Verse 2, Paul says, You have become arrogant instead, so that the one who had done this deed would not be removed from your midst. They were arrogant in their attitude towards sin. You see, Paul is not just concerned with, with the sin itself. He's probably even more concerned with their attitude toward it that they have become so accepting. They have become so proud and tolerant of sin in their midst. He said that they're arrogant. Paul has used this this word numerous times already in in 1 Corinthians, and he's going to use it again. And and it's this idea of this this inflated, puffed-up view of one's self-importance. And the root is that worldly values, once again, and the wisdom of the world instead of the gospel, instead of the cross of Christ that unites them in humility and in wisdom and in ethics and morality that runs antithetical to the world. And so predictably, this same worldly standard, this worldly, these worldly values is applied to sexual morality in the church as well. This is a misapplication of grace. It is an overreaction to the law. Again, the Jews, they came in and they knew the law and they knew that this was wrong, but they're set free now. We're free from the law, and so they thought thought it was okay. And then the, the Gentiles who came into the church, they brought these sins with them, and they misunderstood grace as well. They should have been ashamed. In this case, the Corinthians had become proud of their tolerance. Oh, we are so tolerant of people because of grace. This man's a Christian. He's saved by grace. Who are we? What business is it of ours to judge such a one as this? Because, after all, he's a believer. The opposite of law is license And they thought that they were free from the law and that they had freedom or license to do whatever they wanted to. But the Corinthians should have been grieved instead. They should have been grieved at the sin in their midst. And when there is sin amongst us, it should not be a point of pride that we're so gracious and loving and tolerant. Instead, it should be a time of mourning The sin is in our midst because sin will always, sin tolerated, will have its effect, which is always deleterious. It is always damaging. It is always detrimental to the person in the body of Christ. They were antinomian. That means anti-law. They had no law. They'd been set free from the law by Christ Jesus. And they understood that to mean that they could do whatever they wanted, just like our culture believes today, even when it came to sexual morality. We've not been set free to sin. And we don't sin to get more grace, Paul would say in Romans. They should instead have taken appropriate action. He said, you should have removed this man from your midst. And that's what the rest of the the chapter is going to deal with. We'll get to next week. But instead, they had this pride and this celebration of their open-mindedness. They should have been stricken with grief and taken appropriate action. Some lessons for us. Tolerance of sin is not virtue. It is not virtuous. It is not kind, it is not grace to tolerate sin. It is not grace at all. It's not, it's not tolerance as the way, maybe the way tolerance is, is defined in today's culture. But tolerance means to have difference of opinions. 
and to um, understand that a person can have a different opinion than you. But to endorse, tolerance means today you have to endorse what that person is doing. You have to give up your belief and endorse what they are doing, and that is not a virtue. Gender hospitality, for instance, which means uh, someone wants to be called by their pronouns. Uh, uh, and so to be hospitable, you have to go along with that. It's not true, is it? It is not true. And so that is not, uh, we cannot be tolerant because that's, that's not a virtue. Second of all, God is grieved and indeed even blasphemed when we do tolerate sin. He is grieved Shouldn't we be grieved? He is grieved. Let me read to you a tweet from Trinity Lutheran Church in Greenville, South Carolina. Trinity is very proud to present Drag Me to Church, a drag show about church, faith, and God's inclusive love. You'll be endlessly entertained as the lady, and I can't say her name, leads us through her unique style of worship which includes as many laughs as it does amens. Do not miss the rare opportunity to see a drag queen in church. Thursday, May 12th at 7 p.m., et cetera, et cetera, all in the name of Christ. God is grieved. God is grieved. I know that that's not a a biblical church. The world doesn't know the difference between biblical Christianity and woke Christianity. But God is grieved when he sees things like this. And we should be grieved as well. Number three. We are set free from sin, not set free to commit sin. From sin. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have, we have forgiveness from the penalty of sin because Christ died for us, and we have freedom from the power of sin because we died with Christ. And that's how we live our lives. Freedom to not sin. Not freedom to sin, but freedom to not sin and to pursue holiness. So we know the problem all too well. But what is the answer? So what we want to do in the last part of this is to look at the answer according to the scriptures. We want to look at purity in the church. We know what the sin in the church was. It was immorality and arrogance. But we, let's look at purity in the church, God's design for marriage and sex, because it is also very, very good. And in order to have God's view and see God's design, we first and foremost must have a high view of marriage. It starts there. A high view of marriage. We must elevate marriage because marriage is under attack, isn't it? We, so we, need to, we should be elevating marriage. Matthew 19, um, 3 through 6, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So what is the high view of marriage? Marriage was instituted by God. It's not just um, social it's not political. It's not cultural. Marriage was instituted by God. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Next slide, please. And male and female are created, the created order of gender. He made them male and female. There are two genders, only two. There can only be two. 
and scientific. If you are a man, every cell in your body screams man and always will. If you are a woman, every cell in your body bears that of a female and screams female and always will. Cannot be changed. No matter what the world is telling us, it's a delusion. God made them male and female. Marriage was instituted by God. Marriage is between one man and one woman, he said, not between two men and two women, not between one man and three women, not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. This is God's design, and we do not apologize for it. Next, marriage is the intimate union of two becoming one flesh, and the union of marriage is a picture of the union of Christ and his church. This intimate union of two becoming one flesh. They're, this man and this woman become man and wife. And what was, was once two individuals, now they're still individuals. But something new is created that is mystical and spiritual and wonderful and cannot be undone. That's what marriage is. And it is this union of marriage that is a picture of Christ and the church. Christ and the church, husband and wife. One flesh is a picture of our salvation, a picture of the gospel of Christ. And that is why marriage is so sacred and held in such honor, because it is that which um, declares the gospel itself. And the very physical sexual relationship is part of that. The very part of that. Second of all, we need a high view of human identity. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You are what God made you, male or female. And he made people in his own image. All people bear God's image, believers or unbelievers. All people bear God's image, even if they don't know him. All are created in the image of God, and they have something of that image, the vestiges of the image of God in them, no matter how depraved they are. We, therefore, treat all people with dignity and respect. Genesis 9, when, when uh, punishment came, capital punishment came, it was because, because when you take a life that's made in the image of God, you have destroyed something. The Proverbs say, he who mocks a poor man mocks his maker. And so we, we recognize that all bear God's image and we therefore treat all with dignity and respect. So we have to have a high view of human identity. And the world doesn't have that. True equality, gender equality, and, and racial equality comes in the way that God has made human beings. And our ultimate identity is found in Jesus Christ. That's where I, our, our identity is. Colossians 3, 3 through 5, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body to be dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Your life is hidden with Christ. It's your identity. Your identity is not your sexuality. It is so shallow. It is so wrong. It is unbiblical. This is your identity. You are beloved. You are justified. You are sanctified. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You were once dead and now made alive. And you are complete in him. That is not an exhaustive list. That's the tip of the iceberg. Christian, that's who you are. You are not your sexual identity. You are not your desires. Our desires sometimes run contrary to our identity, don't they? And we struggle against them, not, not to the point of shedding blood, but we do struggle against them. So we need a high view of marriage and a high view of human identity and a, and. Next, we need a high view of sex itself. 
Because the world's view of sex is depraved. It is low. It is debased. It is dirtied. So many people think that we think that sex is dirty, and you shouldn't think that way, Christian. It is not. It is reserved for the covenant of marriage. It is to express physical and emotional affection. It is for the propagation of the species, and and that's often denigrated. But it is part of the purpose, God-given purpose. Sex is wonderful. It is mysterious. It is blessed by God. It is designed to express this emotional and physical affection that two people have for one another in the covenant of marriage. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It is, it is sanctified. It is set aside as a beautiful and wonderful thing. And, and that's what makes sex special. Not mundane and just a physical activity because it's God designed for marriage. And we must recapture the sacred nature of the sexual relationship. Not just bodily function, not just physicality. It is spiritual, it is emotional. And oftentimes we argue that from the standpoint, well, it's wrong because God said it's wrong. Well, yes, he did. But the reason that he said it's wrong is because it's so good, so very, very good in marriage. Because he made it perfect. And mankind was the, 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 the crowning glory of his creation and he gave the sexual relationship as part of that. God has elevated that sexual relationship and we must do the same thing because it's a very good thing. And the world is always going to distort it. When the world defaces that which God makes pure, it, the world tears it down. And it will always be distorted. Some lessons. Embracing sin does not erase sin. When you embrace your sin, it does not erase it. What I mean by that is the world tells us now you have to embrace your identity. You think you're gay, so you need to embrace that. And so if you embrace that, then that that means you can do whatever you want that the gay people do. Right? Now you have a green light. So if you embrace your so-called sexual identity, what if your identity is, what if you're a murderer? What if you have a murderer's heart? Embrace that, okay? Just embrace that. Be who you are. Be true to yourself. See the logic, or illogic, rather? And embracing sin does not erase it, and and so many young people are being sold a bill of goods, and they're being harmed because they're being told that if you just embrace this identity, then you can do whatever you want. And your identity is not found in sexual attraction or sexuality. It's found in being made in the image of God and remade in the image of Jesus Christ. The second lesson is this. We cannot seed the truth. We cannot even appear to condone what God says is wrong. That would be arrogance and hypocrisy, wouldn't it? So we cannot seed the truth. We must be honest and courageous to say that sex as portrayed in our culture is incompatible with the teachings of Jesus Christ and all that the scriptures say. This is not a matter of opinion. This is truth. The more we allow people to say things that are factually, logically, scientifically incorrect, we contribute to the ignorance of the culture. But we have a duty and a responsibility in love and in a winsome way to speak to people the truth that God has given us in his word. So in conclusion, as we go to the Lord's table, and please prepare your elements, we also need a high view of redemption. And that means this. We must never condone hatred or violence against any people or group that live out their sexuality contrary to biblical truth. 
We must remember that people are not lost because of any specific sexual sin. They're lost just as we were once lost. We were sinners. And we must therefore remember that the remedy for all sinners is the same, the offer of forgiveness for all sins through Jesus Christ. It's the only hope. It is the only hope. But it is hope, and it is true. It's not gender reassignment surgery. It's not following your heart. It is the cross of Christ. But Paul's talking to the church here, and he would say in chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. In other words, those who do not trust Christ and remain in their sin, God does not let into heaven. But we and they were on that list. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Amen? Amen. I want you to take a moment to consider your cleansing, your sanctification And if you need to talk to God about any sin, take a moment to do that now. Father, we make a proclamation this morning that we are still sinners. We make a proclamation this morning that Christ died to save sinners. We make a proclamation this morning that we are still unworthy. And we make a proclamation this morning that by the blood of Christ and his body for us, we have been washed, cleansed, we've been sanctified, we have been justified. And we are your beloved children. And we confess those things to you this morning. Our dire need and the absolute perfections of Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So having confessed our sins to you with great joy, we give thanks for all you have done for us in Christ. And we partake of this together as one body in his name. Amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me.